All of those things were done to him, against him, because we were like this. And he didn't come back and beat the sheep and say, you sheep need to get your act together. Stop, follow, stop following the wrong paths. I'm going to go and take care of this problem for you. I hope that that, uh, that verse is, was helpful and encouraging for you. Well, if you have your Bibles along, turn to Luke chapter 6. We get back to the doctor's cure today after a couple of Sundays off. And the doctor's cure, uh, of course, we were talking about, on the one hand, the doctor Luke, who wrote this account of the life and times of Jesus when he was here on earth. The cure is the gospel, but really the, the, the doctor is kind of a double uh, meaning. The doctor is really ultimately Jesus. He's the one who brings us uh, the cure that we need. If you and I were to uh, uh, go into a psychologist's office and have uh, him or her evaluate us and what we think about ourselves, we would fall somewhere on a spectrum between I think I'm, uh, I'm a pretty amazing person and better than other people. And over here, I have a lot of self-doubt, and I think I'm less than other people. And yet, um, if that psychologist would root around a little bit, he would find that probably most, even, uh, even us uh, who are down here on the self-doubting side and insecure side and inferiority complex side, that th there's a lot about the things... Uh, the ways that we respond to other people and what they say about us and how they think about us that really pushes us toward this end. Um, a guy by the name of Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy Sherman, who is a biophilosopher and a social science researcher, um, thinks that's because of what's called in psychological circles uh, pseudo-exceptionalism. Now, the word pseudo means fake. Exceptionalism means better than others. So if you know the phrase American exceptionalism, people argue that um, America is a much greater country than other countries by virtue of our constitution and our way of government and the liberties we have and so forth. So it's this fake exceptionalism, this idea that I'm better than others, and I'm blind to that bias that I have. He writes this. He says, we simply assume, and he's not a believer as far as I know, so he's coming at this from a strictly a psychological uh, analysis of human being. We simply assume that we're kinder, more honest, more realistic, more wholesome than those around us. After all, we're married to ourselves for life, so we make accommodations. We cut ourselves slack. We're fast to forgive ourselves. When challenged, we're much better at making our case than our opponents. We spot injustices to ourselves far faster than we spot our injustices to others. Pseudo-exceptionalism subsidizes our sense of self-confidence, and while many people harbor self-doubt, that does not temper pseudo-exceptionalism so much as feed it. If you're filled with self-doubt already, someone else doubting you could make your pseudo-exceptionalism work overtime to keep you feeling okay about yourself. You become that much more defensive. Now, one of the arguments that's sometimes made <clears throat> as people look in at the believers, looking at the church, looking at religion in general, is that um, uh, religion makes, uh, has bad effects on people, bad effects on people. Back in 2009, as part of the ongoing Christmas wars that we've seen in this country the last 20 years or so, uh, there was a debate raging in uh, Springfield, Illinois, the capital of Illinois, as to whether or not the nativity scene could be set out um, as it had been year after year. 
As you know, these things work their way through the courts, the judicial courts, as well as the court public opinion. And eventually, the nativity scene stayed, but also next to it was a Jewish menorah for Hanukkah. Next to that, a display by the ACLU. And over here, a display by an organization called Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF. And on their display was this writing. At this season of the winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Let me read that again. Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Now that might be true if you lump all religions together. But I want to just have us focus, or at least have this in the back of our mind this morning as we go through our text, whether or not it's accurate or true or verifiable that Christianity actually hardens hearts. Because the truth of the matter is, nobody fought more, more fiercely against or taught more vociferously against a hard heart than Jesus. And what he has to say to us today in our text is going to highlight that. Um, it's interesting, the, the Bible verse that most people who don't know the Bible know best, can anybody guess what it is? You, you see it all the time in the letters to the editor. What? Not John 3.16. Yes. Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, I've seen it in countless letters to the editor refuting Christian writers. I've seen it in blog posts and so forth. Judge not lest ye be judged. Now, that's in our text this morning. Here's the thing. That verse does not mean what most of those people think it means. However, it probably means more than some of us might think it means. So, Luke chapter 6. Let's read uh, starting at verse 37 down to verse 42. <clears throat> Luke 6, 37. Do not judge... A little windy up here. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. And then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Uh, Father, I pray that as we uh, kind of unpack this this morning, that you would guard my heart so that uh, I let in what needs to be let in and don't uh, erect barriers and excuses and yes buts that will dilute 
your word to me. And I pray that for all of us. I pray for the unleashing of the Holy Spirit in our hearts um, that, w- that we might hear not from the world and their vantage point on these and like verses, but very clearly from the Holy Spirit on just what it is you want to say to the people who proclaim, claim to follow Jesus. We pray against our enemy who hates you, who hates us, who hates truth, loves lies, that you would silence him, that you would bind him this morning. Father, we love you. You are indeed, as we've sung, you're a great God who's given us great news in Jesus Christ, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do with this passage, and the title of my message is Soul-Searching Gospel Grace. We're going to kind of work our way backwards through it, starting at the last two verses, looking at this, um, this little uh, illustration that Jesus used about the, the log and the splinter. So we're going to start those two verses, talk about gospel soul-searching. By the way, I think it's probably beneficial to note that this teaching comes right on the heels of what may have been Jesus' most surprising and controversial teaching, surely by this time in his ministry, perhaps uh, through his whole ministry, apart from um, his own death, burial, and resurrection. And that is that we are to love our enemies. That's what comes right prior to this passage. Um, he uses the illustration of a person, and we have a lot of tradesmen here at Keystone, so if you, worked in, you, you work in carpentry or metalworking or cabinetry, uh, you've probably had some experience of getting a foreign object in your eye, a little splinter in your eye, and you know how that goes. It's, it's, it's small, it's, it's hard to see, um, but it's very irritating, especially if it puts a scratch in your cornea or so forth. You might get it out one day, but you have the, um, the ongoing effects, feeling that for several days. And so Jesus is talking about somebody like that on one hand. You've got this little splinter, this small problem in your eye. And then you've got a guy over here who's got a a log in his eye. Now, the word that's used there is speaking about either a main beam in a house or a main pillar in the house. And so this is probably not quite wide enough to be a main beam, uh, but you kind of get the idea. I actually tried to figure out how I could rig something up wrap it around my head and not have me walking around like this. I couldn't come up with anything, so you'll have to make do with this. Now, it's almost so uh, absurd that it's not even funny to us. It would have been funny to Jesus' hearers to imagine somebody over here with a small problem and somebody over here with this large problem, and lo and behold, this person thinks that he or she is competent to go over here and help this person with their very, very small problem. And Jesus is like, don't you realize you have a massive problem? And that before you can go over here and help this person with their minor problem, you have to deal with your major problem. Now, one of the things that's true of the gospel is that it was, to t- it was intended not just to take care of our big problems as well as our small problems, but it was intended to expose to us the magnitude of our problems, the size of our problems, that we have a fundamentally big problem. Nevertheless, sometimes when we talk, especially in in non-Christian contexts, 
it's easy for us to kind of look down our nose at people who we think have big problems and we have small problems and come across in such a way that we're, we're conveying to people that we don't have a big problem, we just have a little problem and you have a big problem. And what Jesus was trying, I think what Jesus was trying to say to people like you and I, if you follow Jesus, is that we have, we have to use the gospel to do some soul searching. Now, uh, it, it's interesting, even people who are not uh, followers of Jesus are increasingly coming to understand that we are by nature self-centered people. Uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the premier new atheists, wrote a book um, uh, some time ago called The Selfish Gene. We are by nature, I usually say this to couples that are getting married, I say this in their wedding ceremony, that you are, I am, we all are by nature self-centered, uh, self um, self-serving, self-absorbed, self-righteous. And so by nature, we see other people's flaws far more readily than we see our own. That's just our natural condition. Now, if we get with somebody who encourages us, or maybe we have the lights go on in our own hearts, we, we start to do some soul searching and try to find out really who we are. Last year, when I was doing some research for a message series I did on marriage, I came across a, a woman's uh, blog post. She was a divorcee, had one child, and she, uh, her husband had cheated on her, and she was just, um, you know, royally ticked at him, as you can imagine, and rightfully so. But she says she got into a, a, a therapist's office who, uh, her words, um, called her out on her BS. She didn't say BS. And started to help her see how she had contributed to the demise of this marriage. And she wrote at the beginning, she said, I'm not writing this so that he will forgive me or come back to me. I'm not even writing this to um, kind of... Uh, paper over his own problems, but she says, I've come to see my problems and all this. And she was very candid. Uh, she had failed to put some boundaries in their marriage with their, her family. Um, she had made her son the priority in their relationship. Um, she had what she describes as emasculating him, and she just called a spade a spade. Now, the, the Interesting thing, when people do soul searching like this, and it's a, a really good thing, but typically people end up comparing themselves to other people. And in her case, she was comparing herself to her ex-husband and acknowledging um, he was bad and he shouldn't have found comfort in another bed. We should have got counseling and so forth. But I was bad and I kind of I contributed to him doing this. She's comparing herself to other people. And that's what regular soul searching typically does. I look at who I am and I look at who you are and I make some judgments along those lines. But gospel soul searching is entirely different. And I'm convinced entirely more helpful for us. This is what Jesus wants us to do is he's saying, you got a, you got a big problem with you, a small problem over here. How can you be helpful to those uh, other people? You see, gospel soul searching, instead of having us compare ourselves to other people, compares ourselves to God. If we go to Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 10 and 11, it tells us that all of us end up in the same boat. 
It says there is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. And that no one is all inclusive, isn't it? Every one of us in the same boat. There's, there's none of us who tell the truth. It doesn't mean that we uh, always lie, but all of us are, are liars. We have that instinctive lying nature in us to protect ourselves. You are this way, you are this way, you are this way, you are, I am this way, I am this way, I am this way. And we drop down later in the chapter, get to verse 23. It says, all of, all, again, all of us, big category, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, the standard by which I compare myself is not other people, but my, my standard is God. And, and now we're all in the same boat. This is why when we talk about the ground in front of the cross, that it's all level. In other words, there's none of us that are, that are higher up, closer to Christ. There's none of us that are um, uh, elevated, and there's none of us that are, okay, some are this far from Jesus, and some are this. No, we all stand together alike. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, makes this kind of a startling announcement. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of sinners. Now, one of the reasons that Paul said that about himself was that he looked back in his past life and he was a convert to Christ, but before that happened, he was persecuting the church. And yet there were a lot of people, persecuted, people who persecuted the church, Paul's day, some of them in more horrific ways than he did. Paul was a very moral Jew before he became, came to Christ, and yet there were people in places like Corinth who were pagans who did things that Paul would have never dreamed of doing, committing sins Paul would have never thought about doing. And yet he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Why? Because he wasn't comparing himself to people in Corinth. He wasn't comparing himself to other persecutors of the church. He was comparing himself to God. That's what gospel soul searching is. And this is how we can come to a conclusion. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, consider others better than yourselves. Consider the person that's sitting next to you, you know has a, a worse track record than you ever will. Consider them better than you. The person who does things you would never think about, don't consider them better than you. Why? because you're not comparing yourself to them, you're comparing yourself to God. That's gospel soul searching. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about when he challenges us not to think about others' problems first, but our own. Who am I, we're asking in soul searching, but when we do gospel soul searching, we're asking who am I compared to God? Now, working our way back up these verses, go back up to 39 and 40. And these verses are actually, uh, it, it almost looks as if they don't belong here. Because Jesus is talking between this, how we treat one another, how we help one another. He gives this, um, this illustration, NLT calls it, about blind people leading other blind people. And so I want to ask a question here. Who is it that influences you? Who is it that influences you? And you say, well, I, you know, that was when I was a young person, I had my peers that influenced me. Um, I don't really have some key person that influences me. To, but, I mean, if you scratch deep enough, all of us have people who influence us. 
It might be your friends. It might be how they perceive things and how they look at things, and that influences how you look at things and think about things. My guess is that during the past political season, all of us were influenced to one degree or another by how others saw things politically. It might be your friends. It might be your peers. It might be the entertainment industry. If you don't have people that are influencing you one way or another, there's probably things that influence you. Music you listen to, the movies you watch. It's interesting, I'm seeing these commercials lately for streaming uh, videos on your smartphone, and I'm thinking, wow, when would you ever have the time to sit down and watch a video on your smartphone for two hours? If I'm going to do that, I want to see it on my 55-inch screen up there. But it looks like increasingly people are using all snatches of time during their day to look at parts of, the vid- parts of a movie and later I look at parts of it. If, if we're bombarding ourselves with movies and videos and that kind of stuff, they're going to be influential in our lives and how we look at the world, how we think about the world, conclusions that we draw. Who is it that influences you? Even as a Christian, you have certain teachers, certain writers that influence you. You're, um, you're affected by what they put down on paper or the things that you hear them say. Now, the big question is, and this is what Jesus is getting at to the disciples that are listening to him, who should be your influencers in life? Because if you're a blind person and you live in paradise and you want to make your way from paradise to Kinzer, and you ask somebody else to take you there who's also blind, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to either end up in the ditch or you're going to end up out in front of a semi and you're both going to get killed. In other words, if you have some sort of weakness, deficiency, or area in which yet to grow, and all of us do, we need people who are influencing us. And Jesus says at the end of this section, at the end of the day, the person who is your teacher and you are their student, you are going to become like them. And so be very careful who it is you select as your teacher. Now we have a wonderful ministry here at Keystone called Men of Iron where we have men who are paired up um, as mentors and protégés, someone who's a little further along in the Lord maybe uh, ministering to someone who's a little greener in their faith, a little younger. And those ministry at times are designed to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not just a one-way street. Over the years as I've discipled young men, I've been, God has blessed my life and ministered into my life and challenged me and encouraged in my life as I'm mentoring somebody else. But my guess is that most of us don't have somebody like that. We have, I don't know, a couple dozen men that are involved in that program. But do you have somebody that you have intentionally chosen as someone to build into your life the kinds of things that you know you lack or you're weak in or you'd like to grow in. And I have a challenge for all of us here today. One, that we would be available to be a mentor, and two, we would be seeking mentors. Now, my guess is that some of the um, stereotypes that we have about things like mentoring um, scares everybody, both the one who might be a mentor and one who be mentored, because 
uh, we have so often had it shaped as an academic exercise. I know when I used to um, disciple men, we would often go through a book study and so forth, but if you look at Jesus' life and the men that he mentored, we'll see any classroom, academic kinds of things going on. You see Jesus saying, come follow me. And then we, we see him essentially saying, watch what I do. And then we see him saying, come do it with me. And then you go do it in your own. And let me encourage you to seek somebody out, maybe in this church, and say, I would I've admired your marriage from a distance. I've admired your faith, your walk with Christ. Uh, would you mind helping me grow in my walk with Christ? And if you're on the receiving end of somebody talking to you like that, again, you might be horrified. Relax and figure out what to do later. All of us who are, um, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I what? Do you know how this says? Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I, I don't know, today, maybe in our era of false humility, we kind of look at that and say, oh, don't follow me, follow Christ. This is Bible. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, I should be, you and I should be pursuing Christ in such a way that we are ready, willing, and able to help others pursue Christ. You say, well, I don't follow Christ perfectly. Amen. That's why we need the gospel, right? I don't follow Christ perfectly. I still have weaknesses. Absolutely, that's true of all of us. But you have something to offer to other people. And it may be that you get with that person, uh, maybe may that you get together on a regular basis. It may be very informal that they just drop into your house from time to time or they call you on the phone when they have a, a problem or a question. So it can be as loose or as tight as you want it to be. But Jesus, in these words, I think, anticipates that all those who are following him have someone in their lives, some key person in their life, that is going to influence them in such a way that they're going to become more and more like them. And that, not a bad thing. So who is it that's influencing you? And now getting up to the top verses in this text. And how are you going to influence others? And Jesus says these words, again, that sometimes our non-Christian critics love to throw back in our faces. Do not judge others, do not condemn others, forgive others, and give to them. Now, the thing, when I said that the people who know this passage who are, are not Christians or not religious, that it probably doesn't say what they think it says. They think it means that we should not be able to evaluate Anything anybody does, anyone is, that that's wrong to make some sort of evaluation. And so, if someone is sleeping with somebody else's husband, somebody else's wife, we shouldn't make moral judgments about that because judge not lest you be judged. We talk about our concern about children who don't have a chance at life in the mother's womb. The mother says, I can't care. I can't have this child, we don't have the money to do it, I'm not married, I, I can't go through with this. And we're like, please, don't, don't take the life of your baby. At least give it up for adoption. And we're like, and these critics say, hey, you, can't, you can't make a moral judgment that that woman's wrong to take the life of that child or to scrub the fetal tissue out of her body. You can't make that kind of judgment. That's, you're judging. 
And if you judge, you're going to be judged. What's interesting is the verses that follow this section immediately, Jesus talks about uh, a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And then he goes on in verse 5 and reveals that what he's actually talking about is evaluating people. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And in this, when Jesus uh, said these words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, again, later on in that chapter, he says, here's the criteria by, by which you can tell a false prophet, and here's the criteria by which you can tell a true prophet. So it's certainly not that Jesus meant we don't evaluate other people, we don't evaluate other deeds. D.A. Carson tried to explain it this way in a uh, talk he made to a mission, uh, mission board in England a couple years ago. He said, I think what Jesus was speaking against was cheap, what he calls cheap criticism. And I'll define it this way. When you and I speak that don't have the gospel shaping and framing our words, we speak down to people in a condescending way, in an arrogant way, in a way that's impatient, that we're not... Um, willing to let people grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as we have. We're speaking down to them. We're, we're putting them down. Again, we're comparing ourselves to them rather than comparing ourselves to the gospel and saying, you, you, I can't believe you do this. I mean, let me just give you some phrases like that that I think, especially as parents, reveal this kind of <laughs> cheap criticism. I can't believe you did that. You should be ashamed of yourself. Are you crazy? <laughs> That's a great one. Are you crazy? Meaning, I'm not, but you must be. I'm a normal person. You're just insane. I can't believe you would do that. Normal people wouldn't do that. All these kinds of sayings that convey something other than gospel, grace, and mercy. And at least part of the reason that we get a lot of pushback, I think, from people who are outside of the body of Christ is that this is how we come across. There's a tone of condescension where we forget, forget what we are apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the gospel. There's an impatience. Um, God has moved us along this far in, in my life at this stage, and I can't wait to have you come along. I'm going to browbeat you about where you're at now. And uh, brothers and sisters, I, there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of um, antagonism, criticism about people like you and me who follow Jesus by unbelievers that's never going to be solved. But some of the criticism is leveled by people who just hear this kind of thing over and over, and they say to themselves, if that Jesus that's behind them is like that? I don't want any parts of it. And we should take Jesus' admonition seriously. Because I'm reading this this week, I'm like, wow. I'm convicted. Forgiving, not judging, not standing in God's place and condemning. 
And it's not only this call by Christ to be like this, but do you see what he says are the consequences if we don't do this and if we do do this? Do not judge others and you will not be judged. He doesn't say who's judging. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. He doesn't say who's behind that. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Passive, not an active voice. We don't know who the person is. Give and you will receive. Your gift will, be, uh, will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you give, get back. Now, this is another instance of what we, uh, is called in theology the divine passive. In other words, there's an action taking place toward us, against us, for us, by some unknown person. But the fact that the passive voice is used is, is an indicator, especially in Jewish context, that this is speaking about God. And so what Jesus is saying is if you judge others, God's going to judge you that way. If you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you condemn others, God will condemn you. If you give to others, God will give to you. Now that might raise a, a, an abundance of questions for you just looking at it through the gospel. You say, wait a minute, I thought the gospel is something free that God gives to us, not based on how, what we do and how we do it. That's true. But I think it, does, it bodes well for us when we hear Jesus' words like this and not try to deflect them or somehow remove them from the text. Here's what I think Jesus means. I don't think he's talking about if you do not forgive other people, God will, there's a certain person in your life that you have a problem with, it's a big problem, they hurt you deeply, and you're, you're not willing to forgive them. All right, let's just call that what it is. That's, that's sin. Amen? That was eager. Is that, amen? Amen. If we don't forgive them, that's sin, period. Is, is, it a, is it sin that will keep you out of heaven that somehow invalidates the gospel? No. If you judge someone, and we all do, is it a judgment that means God will judge us in the final judgment and we are going to be condemned? No. I think he is talking about God's relationship with us, how he responds to us in this life. In other words, uh, let me, uh, oh, I'm out of time. Let me review quickly, make sure we're all on the same page. Mercy and, and grace, the differences between them. So if I, uh, I'm five years old and I break a household rule and my dad doesn't spank me, even though that was the normal consequence for it, that's mercy. Mercy is not getting the bad that I deserve. Um, you pull into my driveway someday and you say, um, I have a Honda Goldwing that I don't want anymore, and uh, I'm going to give it to you, Keith. That's grace. That's something good that I don't deserve, right? So we speak about God uh, treating us. We talk about his mercy and his grace. Mercy, voiding the judgment that we rightly deserve. Grace, the gifts that we don't deserve. So if... if He's saying, he's speaking about condemnation in this life. He's speaking about judgment in this life. He's speaking about giving and forgiving in this life. 
I think what he's talking about is that the, the quotient of mercy and forgiveness that is poured out upon us is directly correlated to the mercy and grace that is poured out from us to others. Does that make sense? And so when I fail to forgive you, that interferes with my relationship in some fashion with God. God may withhold mercy from me, withhold grace from me till I come to the point of releasing that. There's a passage interesting uh, along these lines. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I was talking about a husband's and wife's, wife's relationship. And it says in verse 7 that husbands are to honor their wives and, and treat her well. And it says, because if you don't... <laughs> If you don't, your prayers are going to be hindered. I think it's the same kind of thing. When we fail to show forgiveness, to give generously, fail to uh, or, uh, judge and condemn when we shouldn't, it affects our relationship with God. Let me take you to one passage, and then we're going to quit. James chapter 10. By the way, my walnut jar here. That picture there at the end that Jesus says, talking about pressed down, shaken together until it's running over, uh, that's the idea of someone coming with an apron to the granary and receiving grain for food, and they hold this apron out, and somebody pours grain in there, and then you shake it, and you make room for more. It's kind of like this jar of walnuts, all different shapes and sizes of walnuts. And, and uh, you know, I can make the level of walnuts go down by eating them, or I can make the level of walnuts go down just by doing this. And they, they settle, and they make room for more. And what Jesus is saying, sorry, is you make room for more of God's grace and mercy when you extend grace and mercy to other people. Now, I'm going to read this from the ESV because I think the NLT has made a miscalculation at the very end of the passage so that it does the exact opposite of what I just said. Basically, talks about the judgment of God in the end times. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point to become accountable, but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So we've talked about this verse many times. Puts us all at the same level. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then I love this line. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's true for us as the beneficiaries of the gospel. That's also true for all the people that you and I come in contact with. That God is presenting to us as opportunities to pass on the mercy that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, this is a good warning for us, but also a wonderful promise of blessing for us. That as we show mercy to others, extend gospel grace to others, that you pour it back upon us. I, I I would assume that all of us think about people, maybe somebody right now in our life, that we are guilty of what Jesus has described. 
When it comes to them, we are guilty of judging them. Uh, not of, it's not that we're um, wrongly evaluating what they've done, who they are, but there's a, a, a spirit of arrogance and condescension that comes across that conveys we've forgotten that we are sinners like them. People in our lives that we won't forgive, people in our lives that we condemn, don't want to have any time for, or people in our lives that you've prompted us to be generous toward, and we're just, we want to hold on to it. Whether it's money, it's things, our time, our listening ear. Make us as generous as our Savior was as forgiving as our Savior is, and as gentle as he is, in Jesus' name.